Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Hi, this is Ken Blanchard. We need a new leadership model in business today, one that values both people and results, where leaders see their role as serving instead of being served. In this podcast, my friend and colleague, Chad Gordon, interviews experts who help us explore different aspects of leadership. I know you'll be encouraged and inspired by what you hear and you'll walk away with ideas and insights that will help you be the type of leaders others want to follow. Ready to get started? I'll be back at the end of the interview where I'll share what I've learned and how I'll be putting it into action. Now enjoy this installment of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Gordon. Today, we're going to be talking about the mind, body, and the curiously elastic limits of human performance. We're joined by Alex Hutchinson, the author of the new book, Endure. Alex, welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Thanks, Chad. It's great to be here. So I, I, I saw this in the book. The capacity to endure is the key trait that underlies great performance in virtually every field from a 100-meter sprint to a 100-mile ultramarathon, from summoning Everest to acing final exams or completing any difficult project. So why endure? Why was this such a, 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 a topic that you wanted to tackle? Yeah, for me, it was very personal. So I, I was a, a, a distance runner with the Canadian national team for a number of years. So in a sense, you could say this has been one long quest for me to understand why I wasn't a better distance runner, why I didn't go to the Olympics, uh, you know, why I couldn't run faster, what, what actually were my limits I wanted to understand. But, uh, you know, I spent about 10 years researching the book. And over time, it just kept getting into a bigger topic because the more I, I realized that endurance isn't just, you know, it's not just about your heart and lungs. It just kept getting broader and broader and realizing that the fundamental struggle, if you're running a marathon, is, is has a ton of similarities with the fundamental struggle in not just other sports, but other aspects of life. That it's, it's the ability to push yourself that really separates, you know, the really successful times from the less successful times. And, and uh, it, it's such an interesting topic. And at the core of the Leader Chat podcast is about, you know, really self improvement and how people can lead others better and develop others and lead organizations better. But at the core, it's about how you can be better. And so what you dug into is that there's a lot of different ways that people can push their limits. So how, you know, what was the most eye-opening aspect of, of, your, of your research just right off the bat in terms of this is was going to be the driving force of the book? Yeah. Well, so what, what ended up convincing me that you know, so I'm, I'm a journalist, right? I'm a magazine journalist. So I write a lot of articles and it takes a lot for me to say, okay, instead of spending a month on an article, I want to spend several years on a book. And, and what I realized in digging into the literature on endurance is that there's a, a, a new stream of research in the last like decade or two that really overturns what we've thought of before. And, and the overall theme is that limits that feel totally physical to us, that feel absolutely like they're just a brick wall are almost always dictated by the brain. And that means it doesn't mean we can ignore those limits or, or, or that they're imaginary, but it, it means that they're, they're more changeable than we think, whether that's how long you can hold your breath, how fast you can run, or how long you can concentrate for. Yeah, you say that in, in the book, the limits are an illusion. So the difference between apparent limits and, and, and actual limits. So how do you, how do you I don't trick your brain, but how do you move past what you think is your brick wall? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the first thing I should say is that, uh, 
I, I'm as enthusiastic as anyone else about the the sort of uh, you know back cover copy on my on my book that making the point that this is really exciting. It doesn't mean that there's like you know three simple tricks that are going to allow you to leap over the Empire State Building. <laughs> it's it's right, uh, right. You know, lim- limits are real in, in in various ways, and but I think so. For for me, like the fundamental realization is first of all that the limits that I sometimes experience as 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 physical actually are dictated by my brain. That there that the, and you can show this with with elegant experiments. You know, changing your endurance with subliminal messages, for example, showing that you know your muscles don't change, but your your limits change. So knowing that, I think, is really powerful. And then when you take the next step and say, okay, now I know it. How can I change it? I, you know, I spent a lot of time in the book exploring the, the frontiers of technology. I, I tried out, you know, brain stimulating headphones. I tried out some uh, some brain training tech, uh, programs developed by the British military, uh, and a lot of these have a potential and promise. That it's not this isn't just like hucksterism. This is real science. But what I came away with, and what you know, as as as, as interesting and as neat as all that stuff was, the last chapter that I ended up writing in the book, and the kind of where I tried to pull things together, the last chapter is called belief, because what I ended up coming away with is the idea that, independent of you know subliminal messages and electrical brain stimulation and stuff, actually just systematically being aware of and taking care of your own internal monologue, the messages that you tell yourself. Uh, about whether you're capable of taking on that next challenge. Uh, as trite as it sounds, I think that's the most powerful technique of all is is understanding the role that you play in setting up limits in front of yourself and how you can you can alter that discourse relatively, you know, it's it's relatively easy to change the voice in your head and that can have real measurable effects. Yeah, I, I, again, I really enjoyed the book. It's it's such an, an interesting read and you've got such a great uh, uh Great way of, of 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 storytelling. So let's kind of dig into it. Let's kind of go through the the, the different pieces of it. Uh, one of the the ones that I found to be so interesting, uh, and and I was trying to think about how I could take this into the gym when I work out, or how how I could take this into a challenging situation in the workplace. I'd like to ask you about this: is how you know what are some of the ways you can trick yourself? That was one of the themes that you talked about. You trick yourself into better performance. Yeah, and, and in a sense, this is kind of the the root of my interest is that I had I had this experience where. I was like a kind of mediocre college runner. And, you know, one day I was running a race where the timekeeper called out the wrong splits during the race and tricked me into thinking I was having an amazing race. And I was so psyched up by this that, you know, I I actually ended up speeding up and having a a huge breakthrough and breaking four minutes for 1500 for the first time. Uh, And that changed the trajectory of my career. And that's what, you know, it was the next year that I finally made the national team for the first time. Uh, and so that deception had, had helped me sort of inadvertently. And when I was going around the world, talking to scientists who work in this area and saying, okay, let's say we accept that the brain is in control. How do we, how do we harness this for our own benefits? A lot of the stories they told had to do with, with deception, with, with tricking people or, or finding ways of showing people that they can do more than they thought. I mean, and that, you know, from deliberate deception, things like, you know, putting athletes in a heat chamber, but then changing the readings on the thermometer. So they think it's not quite as hot as the, as it actually is. And they perform better. So the question is, you know, how do you do this in, in real life? And I, I think, you know, the deception is kind of, it's useful to show you what's possible, but I don't think it's a sustainable strategy to sort of make part of your day. It's like, 
you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like those old Pink Panther movies where he, he has his like houseman attack him every day when he gets home from work. You're not surprised <laughs> that you, right. on the 10th consecutive day, you know what's going to happen. And so you, if you're trying to trick yourself all the time, I, I think, I think that's less sustainable. So I think it's useful maybe to, in some, like in an athletic context, you, you know, I, I, I have right. people who've, who say, yeah, you know, my trainer, when I was at the gym, I was trying to lift 250 pounds for the first time. And he just told me there was 220 on the, on the bar. And then I lifted it and he was like, he just did 250. And so that works, but it only works once. And, it, and, it, and it, it, in a sense, you can't design, you can't prepare yourself to make that. You can't do it deliberately. It's got to be, you know, maybe you can do that for a friend, but not so much for yourself. Yeah. And maybe good opportunities to, um, to do that in a, in a, in a setting where you're supporting somebody else. So they're good, great opportunities and great opportunities to help other people grow as well, because you're right. It's, if you know, it's coming, it's not really a trick. So, so, you know, another thing that you talked about, and it's come up in so many conversations we've had on the leader chat is around, you know, positive psychology and, and, and positive self-talk versus negative self-talk. And you actually, you know, you, you say it's a very measurable difference uh, in how you talk to yourself. Yeah. And again, this, this was, uh, let me put it this way. I didn't set out in writing this book. I never thought I would be writing about, you know, positive self-talk. I'm, I'm a, I'm a deeply kind of skeptical guy. If you can't measure it, it doesn't exist to me. Um, and what I found out is that you, you can measure this stuff, that the, there's actually some rem- remarkable, uh, science showing the effects of relatively simple changes. Like the standard thing they'll do in some of these experiments is two weeks of self-talk training where for the first thing you have to do is become aware. What, what is it that I normally say to myself in stressful situations, whether it's when I'm in, up in front of a room giving a presentation or in a, you know, running a marathon, am I saying, oh, you're going to screw up again. They hate me. You know, this isn't going to work. Or are you saying I can do this? I'm ready for this. I prepared for this. I've done the work. And the amazing thing is that, so, so like, look, that they, they can do experiments showing that when you give people two weeks of self-training self-talk training, their performance improves. What's interesting to me and what takes it to another level is that they can show that by changing the words in your head, in your head, you can dig deeper into your physiological reserves. So for, for example, you can push until your core temperature goes maybe half a degree higher before you quit. But your your level of perceived effort stays the same. So you're you're basically altering the relationship between how hard your body is working and how hard it feels, and that's that's really what we're we're after. Because what what determines our performance in the end, the sort of overall message in my book, this idea that it's the brain that sets the limits. What that's saying is that when you stop, it's not because your legs can't move anymore, or you know you, that 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 some something in your body has failed. You stop fundamentally because it gets harder than you're willing to push. And so if you can change the, the, the message, the background message in your head about whether this is hard or easy, whether it's good or bad, whether you're going to succeed or fail, then you're also changing how hard it feels to you. Because if, if you're t- giving yourself a positive message, you're interpreting all the rest of the signals that you're getting from your body, from the environment, from the crowd, you're interpreting those more positively and everything feels better and you're able to, to you know, push harder and uh, perform better on, uh, as a result. And so there's a, there's a bit of a difference between positive self-talk and how you talk to yourself and then this concept of, of mindfulness. And I, it's, it's something I, it's a personal journey that I've gone on and, and maybe six years ago and, and, and 
understanding the value of kind of checking in with yourself, whether it's with your your body or your your kind of your internal spiritual self or your your emotional self, your intellect, and 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 the value of just like checking in and having that mindfulness. So how does that how does that translate to your research? What did you find the value of, of mindfulness and how that can help you thrive? Yeah, this is a great example of a, a, another illustration of where we can see so much crossover between the ideas that can help us in uh you know in the athletic realm and the ideas that are helpful in a much much broader sense and you know and on that note I sh- actually just as a as a minor detour what else one, one thing i'll say is like exercise physiology i think it's a bunch of jocks trying to win olympic medals uh the most famous exercise physiology lab of the early 20th century was the Harvard fatigue lab. That's where a lot of the first experiments were done on like Boston marathon champions. So when I was looking into the history of all this stuff, uh, Harvard fatigue lab, super influential. What people don't realize is that, is that the Harvard fatigue lab was founded in the basement of the Harvard business school. Uh, exercise physiology was fundamentally, it started as an outgrowth of, of business studies because people wanted to understand how to get more out of themselves and out of their workers. So there's a long history of seeing these parallels. And I think mindfulness is the latest example. You know, I was at a conference, uh, last week in San Antonio chatting with a guy from the Danish Olympic committee, if you believe it. And he was telling me about some of the studies they've done with mindfulness and their team sport players. Apparently, handball, team handball is a big deal in Europe. I, I have no idea how the sport works, but uh, th- th- it's a big deal there. And they, he just published a study where they used mindfulness as an intervention. Uh, it, was, it was like two or three hours a week of mindfulness plus using the Headspace app for the national handball team. And what they found is over time, like, and, and they had a control group and everything. This was proper science. They found measurable improvements in the ability of the players to uh, make good decisions as the game went on, to not overreact to adverse, uh, uh, you know, to bad bounces and things like that, to stay calm, to, to to perform well, to have better reaction time, and to do better on cognitive tests, and and it's like all of these things translate absolutely one to one from the sports world to to the business world and and to the personal world that you want to be able to. Uh, look, we're, we're all going to face adversity in, in various, uh, you know, various forms. You want to be able to experience that, to understand that, okay, that didn't go as well as I hoped. Be aware of it, to feel that, but not to overreact to it and not to, you know, throw your racket across the court or whatever the case may be and say, okay, that that sucked. I'm aware of that, but I'm not, you know, you, you're not getting too high or too low with the highs or lows. And instead, you're just maintaining your focus and be, being non-judgmentally aware. So I think it's really interesting to see that as much as a buzzword as uh, as mindfulness has become, there continues to be good science emerging, uh, showing that it can make you a better performer. Uh, and, and, you know, not to, to ramble on on this, but, but in the book, I also talk about some of the research on people like Navy SEALs, uh, where they were using mindfulness uh, techniques and seeing the changes in their brain activation when they put them in fMRIs mm. when in responding to stressful situations that's one of the hallmarks of the way they're able to deal with negative situations without panicking and and it just it just goes to show you know you you talk about you know, becoming a world-class athlete and whether this is somebody that is maybe they're a world-class speaker, you know, they've got to get up in front of the group or maybe they just get in front of the board or maybe they're just getting in front of a, um, you know, their managers and their, their, their direct team. It's, it's, 
you can prepare so much and you can put your, your physically, you physically put yourself through so much, but the mind, um, has the abil- ability to really open up new, uh, new realms and, and, and new doors. So, um, let's talk about the mind a little bit more. So, uh, if, if we are going to kind of create new neural pathways, if that's what we're talking about, if we're going to kind of calm the mind and, and get the negative self-talk out of there, how do you, what did you find in terms of how do you care for the mind? What can we do to, to really take better care and, and, and make sure it's rested? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's a great transition to kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's often tempting to talk about how do we get better? How do we get better? But, uh, you know, a pretty good uh, you know, or a pretty big slice of the pie is how do we avoid getting worse? How do we avoid torpedoing, our, tor- torpedoing ourselves? And one of the one of the big surprises for me in the book was looking at the effects of mental fatigue on performance. And there was a, there's a classic study from 2009. Like we all understand, if we're mentally tired, we're not going to perform as well. But it's it's not as obvious to us, I don't think, as if you have tired legs. And you go try and do a cycling race, you, you kind of, it's very obvious to you what's going wrong, but you may not be aware when you're making subtly bad decisions, you know, whether it's late in a game, if you're an athlete or, you know, in a negotiation in a business context or whatever, you're not aware when you're, when mental fatigue is, is, is hurting you. And so what the study in 2009 did was they, they inflicted mental fatigue on some of their subjects just by having them spend 90 minutes in front of a computer uh, doing a f- fairly si- simple cognitive task. So they had to concentrate for 90 minutes and the control group just spent 90 minutes watching a documentary. And what they found is when they had to do a cycling test right after, <clears throat> not only did they perform worse, but their perceived effort was higher right from the start. So being just 90 minutes of screen time, they were immediately reporting, this feels like a you know a six out of 10 instead of a five out of 10 or a four out of 10. And, and the magnitude of the difference was roughly similar to what they saw when they inflicted physical fatigue by having their subject to do a hundred drop jumps where you jump off a box and, and kind of bangs up your legs, uh, you know, or, or makes them sore and tired. So we're talking 90 minutes of screen time is like a hundred drop jumps and people don't realize that. And, and I don't think people give it the respect they, they need in terms of going into important physical or cognitive situations, uh, with a fresh mind. So like in, in marathon running, you might run a hundred miles a week to train for a marathon, but nobody runs a hundred mile week, a week, a hundred miles in the week, right leading up to the marathon. They taper their training because they know, you know, we should cut our training in half because it's better to be well rested physically than to be a little more trained. And I think this concept of a mental taper is something that's for both athletes, but also for, you know, in other aspects of life, we need to understand, you know, Hey, if I've got an important presentation or negotiation this afternoon, maybe instead of going over the numbers one more time while I eat lunch, maybe I should go outside and go for a half hour walk, get some fresh air and make sure that I'm bringing my best self to the table when I, when I go, go in there this afternoon. So any other, any other actionable steps you'd recommend, uh, before a stressful situation or at the, the tail end of really, you know, ramping up, uh, uh for a big, uh, big meeting coming up in a, in a couple of days, uh, in, in terms of just taking those walks and, 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 uh, and taking the time to, to veg out a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So again, I was at another conference in, in Chicago, uh, just earlier this week with a bunch of people from, uh, you know, major league basketball and baseball and hockey and football. And we were talking about this mental fatigue problem and, and what exactly is the right way to make sure you're mentally fresh and how do we deal with things like, so for these athletes, a lot of them, they love spending time on their phone or, or, or doing playing video games. It's like, is three hours 
of video games? Is that mentally refreshing or mentally fatiguing? And the short answer is, <laughs> we, we don't really know for sure, but the, the likely answer is that it really depends on the person. And you, ha- you kind of have to figure out what for one person might be a, you know, a, a draining experience. Like think of the differences between introverts and extroverts. If, so if you, for one person getting together with, with half a dozen friends and chilling out and having a beer the night before a big presentation might be a perfect way to unwind for another person, like a true introvert, even with close friends, if they're getting together with half a dozen people, that social thing might be draining them of energy and, and leaving them more tired and less refreshed. And similarly, you know, maybe for for some people reading war and peace is a, is a, you know, relaxing Friday night, maybe <laughs> Not sure how many, but let's say <laughs> let's say it is for some. For someone else, it might be really challenging because it's a tough book and it requires a lot of focus and sad things happen or whatever. So I think the bottom line is I I don't mean to cop out and dodge the question, but but I think you have to be uh, a little bit self reflective and 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 start to try and be aware. Because even though I said it's really hard to detect mental fatigue, I think most of us do have some intuition of you know, which things at the end of the day, you're like, oh man, or at the end of an activity, you're like, ooh, you, you know, I, I just want to go stare at the wall as opposed to which ones you, you, you feel, you know, refreshed and invigorated. And, and just think in terms of, um, the, the things that personally give you a little space and a little time. And, and, you know, we can't, it's not realistic to say, you know, you should take two hours to, 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 you know, chill out and go for a walk with your wife or whatever, uh, before every meeting, we, sometimes we have to deal with mental fatigue, but, but it's sort of putting things in a hierarchy, Mm -hmm. understanding when it's most important to be fresh. And then whether it's in the hours before, even, you know, like, let me, let me give you the obvious advice because sometimes the obvious advice is, uh, you know, the least respected. It's like, man, if, if you have something important going on, and you don't get, you don't do everything you can to get a good night's sleep the night before, you know, you're just, you're, you're tossing away money or performance or what, you know, whatever the, the metric may be. It's uh, like s- sleep is, is as important a thing as, uh, as there is in this world, I think. And, and it's, it's, you, you hit on something, you know, Ken Blanchard always, always likes to talk about the simple truths and it, it really is sometimes the most obvious answer is, is people think, well, it can't be that easy, but in some cases it is so, so what you're recommending is find what works for you and how you're wired, but make sure you take the time to nurture. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, that, that requires a deliberate act of self-awareness. Pay attention to what, what, what has worked for you and what isn't. Don't, don't, you know, take, take actionable learning from when things go well and when they don't. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more, and there's a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization, go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. And they have a special offer right now. Send an email to podcast at KenBlanchard.com with leader chat in the subject line. Now through the end of summer of 2018, one grand prize winner chosen randomly will receive a free one-on-one one call with Ken Blanchard. Five others will receive a signed copy of Ken's latest book, Servant Leadership in Action. So we're talking to Alex Hutchinson. He's the author of Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Heck of a, a, a recommendation uh, on, on the front cover. You've got uh, just a really quick uh, snippet from Malcolm Gladwell saying, this book is amazing, exclamation point. So, and I found it to be as well. So I recommend everybody to get out there and, and take a look at it. So we've got a, a little bit more time uh, with you. So I want to talk, uh, now this, this, this next question I have is, it's a little bit around, you know, the physical 
performance um, because you talk about pain and there's not a lot of times where you're doing presentations or you're you're doing that fourth sales call or you're getting in front of in front of a group doing a, a training session where it, you could have some pain but um, said make pain your friend what do you mean by that yeah it's uh, it, it, it's interesting because most highly motivated athletes would say, I don't care about pain. I, you know, I, I'll, I'll do anything to succeed. Uh, but the truth is when you, when you look at, uh, performance, uh, discomfort is, is something that slows us down. Even, even if we consciously are saying, I don't care how bad it feels, I'm going to do it. Uh, we, we get thrown off by it. And for me, the big, the, the, the sort of most interesting insight on pain is that we, it's a it's a trainable trait or pain tolerance is a trainable trait there there's good data to show that athletes top athletes elite athletes feel pain just like everybody else but they're willing to tolerate more of it and but it's not just that they're born that way that if you if you look at them throughout a season their ability to tolerate pain increases and decreases it's highest when they're at a big competition and then it's lowest uh you know afterwards and so what the what the evidence seems to suggest is that yes you can train your ability to tolerate discomfort and a lot of that has to do with exposure if you're if you're dealing uh if you're putting yourself in those situations frequently enough you just get better at at handling it and accepting pain as a sort of source of information uh rather than an alarm signal it's just like pain means i can't continue this way indefinitely but it doesn't mean i have to stop and in fact one of the big surprises was there's a, a, a very interesting study where they uh, blocked pain from the legs of cyclists. So they gave them a, a nerve block in the spine. So they could basically pedal with no discomfort. They, it, it was like, you'd think that would be the magic pill, right? I can do anything I want. In, and, and initially that's what it seems. The, the, they had them do a 5k time trial and, and initially they're just flying out of the gate. It's like, this feels amazing. But gradually they start to slow down and farther and farther. And in, in the end, they don't actually go any faster than they do when they can feel pain. And the point there is that you you have to be aware of pain in order to judge your effort because these guys ended up going so fast that they really just hit absolute physical limits. Their legs were trashed. Like I said before, limits are in your brain. Well, if you disable pain, then you'll discover that your body really does have limits. So so I think the idea here is to understand pain as a, as a signal and, and maybe more generally, like, as you said, pain is a very physical thing, but discomfort, uh, in a, in a broader sense to, to consider it as, as useful information that you can judge if you're feeling uncomfortable in a presentation, uh, you know, understand why that is and understand what you can do to change it, whether it's signaling to you that something's going wrong, that the mood in the room is wrong, but, but for whatever it is, don't just try and ignore or push away feelings of pain take them as information, but not as reasons to panic. Yeah. I love that. You, so they, they, they reframe pain as emotionally neutral information. I like that. <laughs> I like the way that, that thought it's, it's an input. Easier said than done, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, last couple of, of questions and, uh, and this was interesting. This is, this goes more towards the physical side of this. And, and again, our listeners are out there in the business world, but they're also out there um, physically taking care of themselves. Um, what did you find about nutrition? What did you find about eating and drinking and, and how to, how to, you know, hit the, the top limits? Did you, was there a magic diet in, in all of this? <laughs> I, I wish because then I'd be writing a diet book and I'd be, uh, you know, living on the, in the Bahamas with, uh, with billions of dollars. No, it's, it, it, this was a super, super complicated area to, to navigate, um, because it's so complicated and, and people are so passionate about it. Uh, 
on hydration, I will say the the general pattern fits with the overall theme of the book that we we hit perceived limits bef- quite a bit before we hit actual limits. And so I think the the sort of dangers, this idea that if you're thirsty, it's too late and you're already dehydrated and the, the sky is going to fall. I think that's gotten a little overhyped in the last, say, 20 years. And there's been some pushback on that in the last five or six years saying, hey, you know what? Like, it's okay to be a bit dehydrated. If you're thirsty, you need to drink. If you're not thirsty and you're not like on a, you know, forced march in the Arizona desert or something like that, then being being a little thirsty isn't the end of the world. So I, I think my, my my big message on on hydration is that it's important, but it's not this sort of big panic signal. And usually, when you start feeling thirsty, it just it's just a signal that you need to drink, not a sign that you're you know operating at fifty percent capacity or whatever. Nutrition is a lot harder and a lot more complicated. Uh, things have changed a lot in the last ten years. I would say we've learned a lot about the possibility of being healthy and happy on some very different diets like uh, uh, low-carb, high-fat diets, things that most nutritionists would have said, this is terrible 10 years ago. Now there's a lot of people who are healthy and happy on this, and there's some good research showing that you can adapt to this sort of diet. Where I think the evidence doesn't take us is to say, this is, you know, diet A is far superior to diet B. Humans should be only doing diet A and they're going to be smarter and faster and more handsome on diet A. <laughs> uh, you know, there just isn't reliable evidence on any of those diets. And if you look at the sort of evolutionary uh, path, humans were flourishing in all corners of the globe under very, very different diets. So again, uh, you know, at risk of, of taking the cop-out path, I would say if you find a diet that works for you and keeps you happy and healthy, uh, you, you should avoid the sort of grass is greener envy that, yeah. oh, maybe I'd be better if I found the other magic diet. Like if, if you're, if something's working for you, then, then you're, you're doing the right thing. Yeah. That's what I found. And I'm not an expert in any way, but dumb it down, simplify it, what works for you and then move on and actually focus on the things that, <laughs> that, that matter. So we're about ready to, to wrap up. And, and I, you know, I, the, the theme that I get throughout this book, I mean, we talked about trickery. We talked about, um, you know, the different things you can do on, on a day-to-day basis, but a theme I am seeing in this book is around that optimism of a, a belief that you can do it and, and knowing when you step into the plate that you're going to be successful. So ultimately it really is about believing you can, you can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, again, uh, it doesn't mean that if I suddenly, if I decide to believe that I'm going to be, you know, the Olympic champion, that's not, that's not going to happen. My, my window is passed. So, so belief has to be anchored in, in action, right? Like you have to, you have to do the work too, but you have to set your sights, you know, a little bit higher than maybe you think you can and find reasons to believe that that's realistic. Uh, look at the, the, the reasons to expect that you are going to fulfill those goals because in the end, uh, strong self-belief is going to convince you to set higher goals and it's going to convince you to do the work to achieve those goals. So that's not, you know, that's not magic or anything. That's just sort of, uh, sort of common sense and psychology. And for, for someone like me, again, to, 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 just to, to go back to what I said before, who, who's always been very skeptical of these sorts of messages that seem too good to be true. Uh, it's been really enlightening to see all the the data and the studies that show that actually this does play out. If you if you set your goals high and, and have strong self-belief, it will change your outcomes. All right, Alex. So what is the one thing you want our listeners to really take away from our conversation today and from all of your research? What's that one nugget? Yeah, the, the one thing I really hope that people will, will, will keep in mind is that 
the experience of a limit, of a brick wall, of I've done everything I can, uh, that's that's a, a sensation in the brain. Uh, it, and again, it doesn't mean it's it's uh, easy to change, but it does mean it's not as absolute as it feels. And so that I think is the the sort of key realization to, to me, at least, that that tells you, hey, don't take no as an answer, or don't take don't take that feeling as a signal that you failed. Take it as a as a as a signal to look for ways around that that blockage. Great information. So Alex, if people wanted to, to dig a little bit more into you and, and learn more about you and follow follow you, uh, where would you direct them? Uh, probably easiest place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is sweat science, all one word, just sweat science. And that's where you'll, you can find links to articles I write for Outside Magazine and, and the book and anything else I find interesting. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Alex Hutchinson, the author of Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Alex, thank you so much for being on the Blanchard Leader Chat podcast. Thanks, Chad. It's been great to kind of flesh out some of these ideas. And thank you for joining us for today's podcast. If you enjoyed this interview and like to learn more and also help us grow the audience, please subscribe to the Leader Chat podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever you're listening. And please share this with your friends. The best way you can help us grow, though, is feedback. As Ken Blanchard says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. So please write us a review if you haven't already. And by the way, this podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more, there's even a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization. Go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. Thanks again to our guests for joining us today. For now, I have the pleasure of turning it over to Ken Blanchard for his thoughts on what we discussed. Here it is, your final minute with Ken Blanchard. I certainly enjoyed your interview with Alec Hutchinson around the concepts from his book Endure. What he's really saying to me is the same techniques that athletes use to improve performance also work in business, to push yourself beyond where you thought you could achieve. And, you know, uh, I first learned what Alex talking about in basketball. I was a basketball player when I was young, and i never forget in uh, senior year in high school when I was the co-captain of the team, we were playing our big rival, and they were predicted to win the league. And, and uh, we had a, a credible game with them, and I came in in the middle of the a game and really had a hot hand and all. And we caught him, and it went into one overtime and then to two overtime. And then the official said, now we got to go into sudden death. And I remember heading to the bench for the meeting with the coach and the players, and all of a sudden there was just dead silence there. And I heard this voice that said, this is your game, take it. And when we had the jump ball, they got the ball initially, and but it lost it out of bounds. And I said to the other guard as we were taking it up, he said, when we get over to midcourt, give me the ball which he did, and I set up. I was maybe out 30 feet or more, way beyond the two-point, uh, the three-point line today, and, our, and I sat and our coach yelled, no, and I let it fly, and nothing but net, you know, and uh, it, was, uh, it was just in. And uh, I just uh, always, when I was playing, I would say, wow, uh, this is an opportunity. You know, you got the hottest hands around here, and you got to keep on talking uh, to yourself about that. And it's really funny. We have a final four week in our company now, and we have a, uh, a, a shoot around, a, a take 20 shots from the foul line 
Uh, and I can win it most years, you know, because when I say 10, it's your turn, I say to myself, you're the best foul shooter anywhere's around, and, and I walk to the line with confidence, and then I have a routine and all that kind of thing. And uh, so I think it really ap- applies in, in so many things. Uh, in You know, when I started being a speaker, uh, when I would have a speaking engagement, you know, I as a uh, uh, so you got to get your own strategy for calming yourself and getting ready. I always said, let me talk to some people uh, in the company, bef- you know, for breakfast before I speak and all. I want to find out what's on their minds. I want to get in control. And then as I'm waiting for them to introduce me, I'm always imagining a standing ovation uh, for them. You know, and that's the way I think about it. And uh, we're pushing our company right now. Uh, next year is my 80th birthday. And we said, you know, if we can really push ourselves beyond what we predicted for our sales thing, uh, we're going to take everybody in the company. We got 300 plus people to Hawaii uh, to celebrate, you know. And so I leave a morning message for every day to pump people up and, and say, okay, you know, keep going. You know, here's some strategies, positive thinking, self-talk. You know, we're the best. You know, keep on going. And so... Uh, uh, listen to this uh, tape. Uh, get Alex's book, Endure. Uh, I think it can help you and the people around you uh, with tremendous opportunities uh, to push yourself beyond what the limits you thought you could do. Mm-hmm. 